Guild. She's doing a month in, in America with international uh, peacemakers, sharing about her peace work with women, empowering women in, in Kenya. I want to, her to introduce herself to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, our chaplain, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, all of you, for inviting me to be part of your chapel, and I love it. Uh, my name is Veronica Mushiri, and I love the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He is the reason for my being, and he is the inspiration of all that I do. Uh, I come from Kenya in East Africa, and uh, I work with the Presbyterian Church of East Africa as the national organizer and secretary of the PCEA Women's Guild. It is uh, the women ministry within the Presbyterian Church of East Africa, found in three countries, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. We have about a total of 120,000 women all over these East African countries, just, uh, you know, worshiping God and uh, doing the work of service, as the Lord would call us. And why I'm particularly here is because I have been invited by the Presbyterian Church USA, who are our partners, to be part of the peacemaking program. And so we are here, six of us from across the world, going to different places to talk about making peace. And my role mainly is to share how I have been working with women so that women in Kenya would be agents of justice, peace, healing, and reconciliation. And I'm so honored to see very many young women here who will become peacemakers in their generation. I am a mother. Uh, uh, I have five children, one son, and four daughters. I have a granddaughter who is three years old, and I am married to one and only, Mr. Clement Moshiri. And uh, yeah, we love God, and we are honored to be here. Uh, this chapel has really um, reminded me about my days in one of the Christian universities in Kenya called Daystar University, where I studied as a mature student. And uh, we used to have chapel every Tuesday. And uh, to see you here, this is a wonderful opportunity. Those chapel moments in Daystar shaped my life. And to this day, they have shaped my ministry. And so I want to tell you, it is not in vain that you come here to chapel every Tuesday and Thursday. God is going to use the moments here to impact on your life. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I want to invite you, if anyone wants to come get to know Veronica and her work more, we're going to go over to lunch, have lunch in the crow's nest together So at, right after this. So we'll just meet at the back and we'll walk over. If you don't have a meal plan, uh, we'll treat you to lunch. If you do have a meal plan, we'll just go up there and head up to the crow's nest and you can hear her story, her stories, what she's doing, and ask her questions. If you all could, let's pray together. Lord God, we open our hearts and our ears to hear all you have to say. Thanks for this good work you're doing. Open us and bless Mindy as she shares. 
that we would be your people more and more and live in that light. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and good morning. Our scripture today um, comes from Luke chapter 7. Hear these words. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. And as he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood there still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all of the surrounding countries. This is the word of the Lord. The other night, uh, my three-year-old, I have a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, both girls, and my three-year-old woke up screaming. She was walking around a dark hall, banging into things. It was one of those ugly cries, you know, where the snot's coming down and she can't quite catch her breath, like, <gasps> she was just a hot mess, you know what I mean? It was as if she was completely and totally disoriented. She had been woken from this sleep, terrified, completely disoriented. This word disoriented, it means this, a loss of one's sense of direction, a loss of one's sense of position or relationship with someone else or their surroundings. It's a temporary or permanent state of confusion. And a question of who am I suddenly. Everything seems to be out of sorts. A loss of my sense of direction. The widow in this story this morning does not speak. She doesn't say a word. But from the history of what happens to widows in Jesus' time, this long walk in this funeral procession for her was nothing less than a season of disorientation. She had no husband, and now her only son was being carried out to his cemetery. He was dead. We don't know for how long he had been sick. Was it a freak accident? Had she prayed for hours and hours and hours for his healing? Her son was dead, and it seemed as if God had done nothing about it. What would happen to her now? Without any men in her life to rely upon, widows usually became homeless, outcasts, beggars. Her only means of support now were completely dead. She is also walking to her funeral, for she is dead too. It must have felt like complete and total rock bottom for her. 
she was hopeless. There's an author and a writer named Glennon Doyle Melton that I've been reading lately and hearing from. And she says when in these crisis moments, when you lose someone or when the divorce papers come through, it's as if she describes being sent an eviction notice to your life. Everything completely is wiped out. It's like a, la a landslide. Everything changes. The rug is pulled out from under you. She has no purpose left, this widow. She has no property. Completely and totally disoriented and must have felt completely alone. And so she walks to his grave. The Jewish people took burials very, very seriously. It's the way the community paid their last respects. No body was to be left unburied. So as soon as the person had died, his eyes were closed, they would kiss the person with love, the body was washed, and as it was custom during Christ's time, they would wrap the body elaborately in all of these shrouds, they would cover the face in a special cloth, hands and feet were tied, and then all of the family and friends could come and say goodbye for the last time. And this actually happened very quickly because of the heat of the climate, they move this very, very fast. He may have just died early that morning. So suddenly there's a group of family and friends gathering and the body is being carried. And by the way, there's no professional carriers at this point. These are all those that knew and love him. They were friends taking turns as a sign of affection. And women would lead these professions, these processions, excuse me. And there was much, much sorrow Many times they would actually bring in professional mourners that would cry and wail and throw ashes on their heads. And oftentimes music was played as they processed. There was much going on in this time as she walked toward this grave. Loud chaos. It must have been so, so loud. People giving advice, people crying, people saying, what about me, right? All of this pain that is coming up. Yet for her, there must have been this deep stillness and void and quiet within her own soul. Death is eerily quiet. It's so still. It is lifeless. There is nothing. I keep hearing students saying to me, I keep crying out to God, and I'm not hearing anything back. He's not speaking, he's not doing anything, and it's infuriating. I thought this was to be a relationship. I talk, you talk. It's a dialogue, not meant to be a monologue. I don't hear anything. And by the way, I grew up in the church. I spent my summers going to camp. I've served in Young Life. I've come to Whitworth for crying out loud. I'm taking Bible classes, and I'm serving in Cristo. I have done everything I thought I was supposed to do, and I've heard nothing. How am I supposed to understand this pain when I feel as if I'm supposed to, I've done everything right? Why is this happening to me? Where are you? She's quietly walking toward 
the cemetery, feeling dead inside, and it's as if God is nowhere to be found. But it's, the scripture says Jesus sees her. When Jesus sees her, he has compassion on her. I think Jesus and the widow at that moment had a holy, sacred moment. I think he quietly goes up to her and he looks into her blurried, tearied eyes and he sees her. And I think before Jesus said a word to her, he was able to look so deeply into her eyes that he was able to communicate, be still and know that I am God. And at that moment, this woman who has lost everything, I think for the first time, was able to breathe. That the <laughs> gasping and the sobbing subsided, and she was able to breathe. When I woke up that night and I found my three-year-old, I grabbed her into my arms. She, in her footy pajamas, with snot flying out of her nose, weeping, and I didn't say a word. I breathed deeply, and I was desperately trying to get her to sink in with my breath, for us to breathe together. Deep breath in, deep breath out. I think that Jesus and the widow looked deeply into each other's eyes. And in that moment, when Jesus was able to see her, when he was able to see all of her pain, he was able to communicate, know that I am God. I am God beyond death, beyond divorce, beyond cancer, Beyond your broken relationships, be still and know. And he held her and her pain. Do not weep, he says. Do not weep. And I really don't think this is Jesus going, buck up, lady. It's not all bad. Come on, you can do it. Let's rally. We're going to be fine. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. It doesn't work with a three-year-old, and it doesn't work with widows. I don't think that's what he was doing. A lot of people say, why did Jesus say don't weep? Jesus is coming with this compassionate heart saying, oh, please, I'm here. Be comforted. And I think at that point, all the chaos around them stopped too, and all eyes were on Jesus the Christ. My friends, I need to ask you this morning, what are you doing with your pain what are you doing with your pain? Because we all have it, by the way. None of us are, fear, are allowed to take a pass on this. That widow could have lashed out and said, you know what, back off. Get away. You weren't here. I haven't seen you. Take a hike. What are you doing with your pain? I remember a season in my own life where I felt rejected and ashamed and humiliated. And I remember one dark night I went outside in my backyard and I sat there. And it felt as if God himself was coming and he was trying to look in my eyes. And I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't let him. I don't want you to see this. Back off. And I turned. 
what are you doing with the pain? Are you numbing it? Are you covering up with alcohol or drugs or overeating or Netflix binges? What are you doing with it? God is not here to erase your problem. Is your pain making you nasty? Or are you throwing it back at somebody else? Too often, this author said, we treat pain like this hot potato. When we feel loneliness or fear or isolation, we throw it back to somebody else. And she says, pain is not a hot potato. Pain is a professor that comes knocking at your door. Are you going to let it in? The wise people say, you know what, Dr. Payne, come on in here, and I'm not going to let you leave until you teach me everything that I need to know. I don't know about you, but when I've gone through dark seasons in my life, I seek out those people that I know have gone through pain and have lived to tell about it, and they talk about their faith in and through it. Because way down deep, they've gone through these dark seasons, and they were able to look Jesus Christ in the eye, and he was able to say to them, be still and know that I am God. And in that moment, you take a long, deep breath, and you say to him, look at all of my flaws, all of my insecurities, all of my worries and my fears, and all of those nasty pieces and the prideful parts of myself that are getting in the way of me breathing deeply with you, God the Father. Jesus and the widow have this holy moment, and the son, he walks right up to the son, and he invites the son to life. Suddenly, the widow can breathe. Suddenly, this young man can breathe. This mother-son relationship is restored, and somehow, Jesus Christ turns a funeral into a birthday party. And all things are renewed. How is he able to turn death into life? I read a book recently where the author says this. I had this moment with God. I am on the floor pouring out my heart. God, by the way, is an old woman in a rocking chair, knitting a blanket and rocking back and forth. The woman goes on and on, and she's crying and explaining and defending her problems and complaining about her life. And God just quietly sits there and keeps on knitting. She's so angry. She tells God, exhausted by it all, wants all this pain to go away. And God just rocks back and forth and keeps on knitting, even with a smile at times. And she says, I think for a minute, and I look at the knitting on her lap. I gaze at the part that is done. It's breathtaking. All blue and green and hot pink and gold and silver. At first the colors seem to swirl wildly, but then suddenly I recognize a pattern, and the pattern is me. I am beautiful, swirly, wild, and beautiful. No, I say to God, don't stop. Keep knitting. Because she is knitting my life. Of course, 
I am what her hands are working on, and I want her to concentrate because I trust her still. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, amen.